This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is value. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Thank you for listening to Embrace the Truth, the teaching and apologetics ministry of Abdu Murray. Abdu spent most of his life as a serious Muslim, but after examining the evidence for the gospel and struggling with the emotional price that would come with changing his entire worldview, Abdu committed his life to Jesus Christ. Since coming to the Christian faith, he's become an international apologist, author, and professor. He's dedicated to engaging non-Christians with the credibility of the gospel in ways that touch the heart and the mind, as well as equipping Christians to do the same. Support for this ministry comes from our listeners' generous gifts and donations. For more information, please call 888-84-TRUTH or visit our website at www.embracethetruth.org. Today, Abdu will continue his discussion on the four main questions every worldview must answer. This week, he discusses how Islam, the religion of his birth, describes God, tells us why we are here, explains why the world is the way it is, and whether there is a salvation, and compares how the Christian faith answers these same questions through the greatness of God. To learn of the Muslim worldview, here's Abdu. Well, good evening, everyone. I just noticed, I'm looking at this music stand, I've like pulled it up like three times in a row now to get this high, I've noticed it says River Edge Church. Did someone steal this? <laughs> Our Christian witness is a little lacking around here, I should say. Well, thanks everyone for having me here for the third and final um, installment of my talks on world religions. Um, we come to it now, to the last one, where we're going to discuss the religion of my birth. The religion that I followed most of my life up until 11 years ago, the religion of Islam. It is, by some accounts, the fastest growing religion in the world. It is, by some accounts, the second largest religion in the world with almost one and a half billion followers around the world. And if you don't know a Muslim, just wait five minutes. You'll know one. They're going to be your friends and your neighbors, your co-workers, your kids' friends and neighbors, They are here, and we welcome them here because it provides us an opportunity to share something about Jesus with those folks. As we come to this last part of the World Religion series, we're going to be discussing how this religion, Islam, answers the four main questions of life and comparing those to how Christ would answer those questions. I want to bring you back to a starting point. I started by saying four weeks ago, that it is impossible to do justice to all these worldviews and all their intricacy and their rich tradition in the short amount of time I have. And Islam is no exception. In fact, Islam would be the one exception to, not even an exception, it would be the exemplary model for one that I cannot possibly do justice to in the short time we have. But I am going to focus on how Islam answers the four main questions of life. And you see, what's important is I've compared those Answers that each worldview is given to the Christian faith because I wanted to show you something about the Christian faith, how it answers those four questions uniquely and in a different way depending on who you're talking to. See, for the Hindu, they have a very different perspective. 
that is fundamental to their life. For the secularist, it's different from them. And for the Muslim, it's even more different. But the gospel actually answers these questions in a way that speaks to everyone. And I'm hoping to show that to you tonight as I center on the four main questions. And to bring that back to your uh, attention about what those questions were. Every worldview, if it is worth your attention, has to answer four main questions. The first question, is there a God and who is he? What is the purpose of human existence? Why are we here? What explains the human condition? What explains the world we see around us, both our own condition and the condition of the earth itself? And is there a salvation or a better life than this one? And if there is, how can we attain it? Every worldview has to answer those questions. Islam tries as well to answer those questions. Muslims, the central core of a Muslim belief, the focus that I'm going to talk about tonight is on the very first question, especially. Is there a God and who is he? You see, Muslims cherish and hold dear their view of who God is because Muslims have an emphasis. Whereas pantheists, like Hindus, would say, we are all part of God. Muslims don't say that. That God is, there is one God, but that God is great. You hear oftentimes, you'll see in the news and you'll see in other places, Muslims say the words, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allah is the word for God. It literally means the God. Allahu Akbar means God is great. Actually, more literally, it means God is greater. And so the central foundational view of the Muslim faith is this idea that God is great. There is one God. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the creator of everything, and he is the destroyer. He is the judge, yet he is merciful. He is all these things. Yet, as we share this view with the Muslims from the Christian perspective, that God is one, that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all these things, in the Muslim concept, God is what's called a monad. A monad. This is a word that comes from the Greek word manas, which means one. Muslims believe that God is one in his nature, and one in his person. There's no, undifferenti- there's no differentiation in the persons of God. Whereas in the Trinity, in the gospel, we believe that God exists as one. There's one God, and he exists with three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Muslims don't share this view. They reject it outright, believing this is actually polytheism, or what's called shirk, the unforgivable sin in Islam. They believe that God is one in nature and one in person. He is one what and one who. He is Allah, and that's all he is. There's no differentiation within himself. But he is so all-powerful, this monad, this absolute unity that that is God, that he can do anything. He can do anything, even things that are arbitrary. He can violate his own standards. He can send, send good people to hell and bad people to heaven if he so chooses. He doesn't choose that, but he could do that if he so chooses because he is limitless in his options and in his power. While God is a personal God, he actually has a personality in the Islamic view, he does not have relationship with his creation. Not in the intimate sense. So the Quran actually does refer to God as al-wudud. That's an Arabic word that means loosely translated, the loving, or the one who loves, in terms of his creation. But he doesn't have an intimate relationship with his creation. There is no such thing as an intimate relationship between the creation and the creator. He wouldn't condescend to do that. He wouldn't condescend from his absolute loftiness, his absolute transcendence. He transcends all the things that we know, and so he's unknowable, utterly unknowable to you and I. We simply know his commands as revealed in the Quran, which is the holy book of Islam, and through the sayings of his prophet, Muhammad. 
And so he's utterly unknowable, and he would not condescend to become one of, my, one of us. And because there's no Trinitarian idea where there's a God the Son, there's no Son of God either. Where God condescends to be among us and live with us, Islam knows no such idea. It rejects it outright. In fact, the Quran actually says these words. Had Allah wished to take to himself a son, he could have chosen whom he pleased out of those whom he he did create. But glory to him, he is Allah, the one, the irresistible. The Muslims reject the idea of God incarnate. He would not incarnate himself. He would not limit himself in any way as that's degrading to his nature and he would not become among us because that further is degrading to his nature. So that is God, utterly unknowable, transcendent. He is the master of the universe. He is not intimate, although he does express love in some sort of way with his creation. He's not intimate with his creation. But what is the point of human existence in relationship to this God, this God who is great? Muslims believe that God is the maximally perfect being, that he is the greatest possible being you can conceive of. If you can think of a being greater than God, that being is God. But how does that relate to us and to our purpose here on the earth? What is the purpose of humanity? Well, it's found in the clue of the very name of the religion. Islam is an Arabic word which literally means submission. It means to submit yourself to God's will. You see, God is not in a relationship with you in a personal relationship, though he guides, but he guides through his commands and through his edicts, and you are here to submit to him. And so you are a, if you are a submitter, you are a Muslim, which is another Arabic word which means one who submits. There's a debate, obviously, amongst some scholars as to whether or not these ancient Arabic words actually mean these things. Some believe that Islam means to make someone submit, and a Muslim is one who is made to submit. While others say, and the more mainline view is that Islam means submission, and Muslim is one who submits to God's will. See, man is sort of a vice regent here on earth. We are placed here in charge of creation under the authority of God to ensure that God's will is carried out in this world. But again, there's no concept of a relationship here. So your purpose is not to have relationship, intimacy with God, because that is, again, condescending or degrading to God. The only relationship between man and God is the one who submits to his will. He is the creator, you are the created, that's it. He is the master, you are the slave, that's it. And while it does refer to God as al-wadud or the merciful in these senses of a relationship, that relationship is limited, extremely limited, because God is unknowable. See, God actually does have a sense of love for people, but his love is conditional in Islam. Throughout the Quran, you'll see that that the, the Quran says, God loves those who do right. God loves those who are righteous. God loves those who are faithful. But God loves not the proud. God loves not the haughty or the unbelievers, or the rejectors. He loves them not. You see, that would entail a relationship if he did love them unconditionally, because unconditional love puts you up for risk. It means that if I love you unconditionally and you reject me, then I have to still love you, and I lose something in that relationship if you reject me. And so Muslims believe God is not dependent on anyone, and so he wouldn't be dependent upon your love in the conditional, in the unconditional sense, and so if you reject him, then he loses something. And if he puts you in hell for rejecting him, then how is it that he could still love you when you're in eternal torment? But the 
this, this misunderstands the fundamental idea of what it means for unconditional love. You see, we would think of something like this. If I was in a relationship with you where I loved you unconditionally, and you reject me, I hurt because I lose something. Not so with God. With God, in the Christian worldview, when you reject God, he hurts, but not because he lost something, but because you lost something. There's a fundamental difference there in the worldview. God's love is conditional in the Muslim worldview. Your purpose is to experience that love by earning it. What is the explanation for the world we find ourselves in? We know our purpose. Our purpose is to submit to God. What is the explanation for the world we find ourselves in? The explanation is this. We are not submitting to God's will. We find ourselves in the world we're in because we have not submitted to God's will. It sounds very eerily similar to our own story of Adam and Eve's uh, travails and tribulations and tests in the garden. In fact, the Quran actually shares this story. It might surprise you to know that the Quran actually shares the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, being tempted by Satan. They had one command to follow. The Quran is sort of vague on this idea about what the command is, but they disobey it. And God throws them out of the garden. But you see, in Islam, this is not an original sin necessarily. This is a sort of a moral slip that Adam and Eve underwent. And God brings them to earth, to an earth that is not perfect like the garden was. They are here to follow God's commands. And he gives them what is the blessing, which is the code, the moral code, the moral law to follow. And this actually is a blessing for them, better than the garden, because they would eventually be able to work out their relationship with God, work out their own salvation in this way. And so this is actually a blessing in the Islamic worldview. But the fact of the matter is, they did in fact sin, or they did in fact disobey God, and were sent down to earth because of it. See, the Muslim idea about humanity's origins and its very nature is that man is essentially either morally neutral or morally good. So every, every child that's born is not in, born with an original sin. Every child that's born is born morally neutral or even morally good. And because they're not perfect, they live in a corrupt world and that corrupt world corrupts them over time. But there is a sense in which Islam recognizes the inherent evil within the human heart. I read these words from the Quran to illustrate this to you. The Quran says, if Allah were to punish men according to what they deserve, he would not leave on the back of the earth a single living creature. If he were to punish man for what he deserves, he would not leave on the back of the earth a single living creature. Do you see it? You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, biblically, they, that resulted in a cursed earth. And an earth that has tsunamis and earthquakes and snakes that have venom and spiders that bite you. We are responsible for the earth we're in. Islam recognizes that. When, the, when Allah says in the Quran, according to Muslims, that if God were to punish man according to his deeds, he would wipe out the entire existence of all life here. In other words, man's sin has, an, has a stain on all of creation. And there is a clue there. There's a clue there that shows us that there's a bridge that can be built in sharing this idea with a Muslim that in fact man does need a savior. But Islam rejects the idea of a savior beyond yourself. See, there is a heaven in Islam to answer the fourth question. Is there a heaven and how do we attain it? There is a heaven in Islam. 
Islam describes this heaven in very graphic, sort of detailed ways. It describes a heaven that is lush in the garden. And it calls it the garden, the Jannah, the garden, lush with, with trees and fruit dripping from the trees practically, waters that run beneath this, uh, this garden that are sweet tasting and rivers of wine, which is ironic because you can't actually drink wine in this life as a Muslim, and sensual pleasures as well. Think about, and couches, soft, pillowy couches to recline on. Think about the allure of this heaven the Quran describes. If you're an Arabian in Saudi Arabia in the 7th century, in a place that is sandy and hot and coarse and rough, and you're told the garden you can inherit is lush and green and has water abundant and soft couches, it is an enticing reward. It's a very sensuous idea. We share something in, with, this, with Islam in the sense that as Muslims believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. They will physically rise, as we believe we will physically rise. These bodies that are imperfect will be raised uncorruptible in Christianity. And the Muslims believe that the believers will also inherit a very physical heaven in this sense. But the emphasis isn't on what is a relationship with God, but more on a experiencing of all of life's pleasures. But how do we attain this heaven? How do we get there in the Muslim concept of God? Uh, sorry, Muslim concept, concept of salvation, which in, in, in a technical sense, there is no real salvation in Islam because you can't be saved from yourself. You have to save yourself. Salvation implies that someone else saves you. See, Muslims believe that God actually, that you are, you need to have God's mercy to attain heaven. You do need that, that you are incapable of going all the way yourself, but you must have God's mercy to attain this heaven. But here's the interesting part. In order to have this heaven, you have to do it yourself. In order to have this mercy, you have to earn it. See, the Quran says this, that there is no one who can actually bear your burdens for you. There is no savior for you who can take on the sins that you created. The Quran says, say, shall I seek for my cherisher other than Allah when he is the cherisher of all things that exist? Every soul draws the meed or the merit of its acts. No one uh, on its own, but no one does it for itself. No bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another. The Quran also says, who receives guidance receives it for his own benefit. Who goes astray does so to his own loss. No bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another. Nor would we visit with wrath until we had sent a messenger to give warning. No bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another. It is replete throughout the Quran that no one can take on the burdens you have heaped upon yourself. No one gets your benefit you've, you've reaped and no one, gets the, no one can take on the sin that you have heaped up for yourself. So there's no savior who can save you from those sins. Only you can do it yourself. How? By following God's commands, by obeying the law, by doing these things that you can attain heaven for, by doing good works. You can only attain heaven by having a balance where your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. In fact, the Quran and the, and the Islamic literature, including the hadith, hadith are the sayings of the prophet, spell out for us that in the last day, God will sort of balance your good and your bad on a cosmic scale. That the good and the bad will be weighed against each other. And that if your good outweighs your bad, 
you get to go to heaven. And if your bad outweighs your good, you have to go to hell. And the mercy comes in where God weighs one good deed the weight of 10 times of a bad deed, such that it outweighs it naturally. But this is God's mercy, which you have to get through your works. So the Quran says over and over again, it says many, many times, God is oft forgiving, most merciful. Oft forgiving, he's often forgiving, and he's the most merciful. Yet every time in the Quran you see this statement that God is oft forgiving, most merciful, it comes in the context of God saying, you have to do this, 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 and this. You repent, you do good, you take care of widows, you take care of orphans, you do all these things, and God is oft forgiving, most merciful. It's always coupled with action that you have to attain it. And so in a very real sense, God's mercy is an earned mercy. It is an earned mercy, and that is simply an oxymoron. Earned mercy is no mercy at all. By definition, mercy is something you don't deserve. It is something that you do not have coming to you. Forgiveness is something you don't get because you deserved forgiveness. You get forgiveness simply by the charitable and gracious act of God. And so earned mercy is literally a contradiction in terms. And it's the fundamental problem with that, and you can show that through the very concept of what it means. You see, God in the Islamic concept, as I said before, is all-powerful. He can do all things. He can do anything he chooses to do. That means he can forgive a sinner without payment for that sin, simply by, by, by divine fiat, by simply by exercise of his sheer will. His justice can be compromised simply because he can do it. In other words, his nature is subservient to his will. He is not beholden to any set of moral codes, even those he imposes on himself, because he is limitless. He can do whatever he wants. And Muslims have a sense that God is greater. Remember, God is greater. That is the fundamental tenet in viewing God. God is greater, and so he cannot be limited in any way, shape, or form, even if that means he can violate his own nature, even if that means he can violate his own standard. And so there is no assurance of this salvation. Muslims have no assurance whatsoever that they're saved. They can live a solid, moral life, and at the end say, inshallah, God's will, whatever God wills is what will happen to me, and they have no assurance of their salvation. Because it may be that God says, that's not good enough. And it may be that they don't know if they've even reached that point. And it may be because God, at his divine fiat, says, I just don't want to exercise my discretion and let you into heaven. His will outstrips the need to be constrained by his nature because God is great. Now you might ask yourself, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that seem to make sense? Because if God is bound by a moral code, then he's bound by something beyond himself. And if he is all that there is, then how can he be bound by a set of laws? See, the Christian worldview on this is far different. The worldview of the Christians is this, that God is not bound to be good for goodness sake. He's not bound to be forgiving for forgiveness sake. No, God is forgiving and good because God is good and forgiving. These things flow from him. He defines these very things. In other words, I believe, and the Bible tells us directly, God cannot lie. You and I have the freedom to lie. We have a choice that God cannot make. And the reason is not because God is limited, it's because God is pure. And because he is the truth. There is no lie in him to give. 
he cannot go against his own nature. He would stop being God. And the one thing God can't do is stop being himself. And so the Muslim is mistaken in this idea that you, need to, you, can, you can strain God by saying things he cannot do. No, God, by his very nature, does what God does. And this leads me into the answers for the Christian faith in sharing the truth of the Christian faith with the Muslim. How does the Christian faith answer these questions with the view of God's greatness? As you're sharing this with people, how do you say God is great in these ways? You see, Muslims will actually say the Christian God is not great. The Christian God is deficient because he condescended and he incarnated himself and he was limited on the earth and he had to go to sleep and all these things and he died. This is not a great God, according to the Muslims. Your trinity is an idea of polytheism. This is not great. And in this, they are mistaken. Because the gospel answers the four questions of life in a way that shows God is not only great, he is maximally great. He is the greatest conceivable being. Islam believes that there is one God. One God who is so lofty that he would never condescend to have relationship with us or show us unconditional love. Therefore, we are here to submit to him and must earn his grace and mercy through works. This is not who God is. Please tune in next week as Abdu shows how the Muslims' desire to worship God as great can only be fulfilled by the gospel. Thank you for tuning in to Embrace the Truth. We hope that this message has engaged your heart and mind. To learn more about Abdu and the Embrace the Truth team, please call us at 888-84-TRUTH or visit us online at www.embracethetruth.org. Embrace the Truth International.